This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Jack Begbie. This week, we're talking to Mark Stefano, BuzzFeed Australia's political editor, about Twitter, memes, and how he became a political journalist. This interview was recorded in front of a live audience of student journalists. Enjoy. Now, uh, you had a job at the ABC. Yep. Now, that's a job that every journalism student covets, and you gave it up to go to a job that was basically with a bit of a journalistic startup. Uh, what was it like going from the monolithic ABC that's yep. online, audio, video, to BuzzFeed? Terrifying, because I told my dad, my dad's a conservative Italian man, and I told him, hey, dad, I'm leaving the ABC, I want to join this thing called BuzzFeed. And he said, what's that? And I said, oh, it's a website, like go on the website. And I was on the phone to him and he logged on and he was like, are you, are you, do you want to write about like Kim Kardashian's butt and stuff? And I'm like, no, 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 trust me, dad. Like we're going to, like, trust me, BuzzFeed is like serious. It's a serious journalistic organization. I watched, um, I was at the ABC for four and a half years. The first year that I was at the ABC, I did not write one bit of copy. Like I did not write one story. My first job at the ABC, I picked up uh, Juanita Phillips's dry cleaning every day. And I would do her auto cue, and I would make her tea, and I would pick up Jeremy Fernandez's dry cleaning every now and then. Uh, but I and I would transcribe. I used to transcribe a lot, right? And so the problem is, is that people say to me, "Oh, you know, you left the ABC." I never got to the ABC through conventional means. Like I went through what is what is strangely known and a little bit like I hope it's not too euphemistic. But I went through the back door. I applied for an ABC cadetship four times and I never got an interview. And I applied for Fairfax cadetships three times and I never got an interview. I did the test a couple of times. And the whole process taught me that the cadetship process was wrong and it got the wrong people into those jobs. And I think that that's the one message I always say to young journos. It's like the hunger for reporting will always beat the person who has the better voice. I did a voice test at the ABC and they were like, you have a terrible voice. And I was like, well, okay. 
And then like a year later, I was reading the news on Triple J. So it was okay because they needed news readers. So it was fine. I'm already off on a tangent. What I will say is this. Why did I leave? BuzzFeed is, was doing incredible stuff in the US. And Ben Smith, who's the editor-in-chief, my boss, there's this great video of him at Neiman Lab. And um, he talks about journalism online in a way that like literally I was sitting in my little hut in Darwin going, oh my God, like this is it. This is exactly what I want to do. The reporting that I wanted to do was via social media. Like I thought he described social media as channels, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. It's like, they're just channels. And I was like going, and I was having these epiphanies and like, yes. So when, when the Australian office opened, I was like, I have to apply. And the ABC wanted to keep me and I wanted to stay in many ways. But look, I think that I made the best decision of my career going to the Kim Kardashian website. Um, so when you joined BuzzFeed, you were Australia's, uh, BuzzFeed Australia's first political editor. Yeah. Uh, what was it like carving out an entirely new niche in BuzzFeed? I mean, you've got to get a pretty thick skin. Like you get criticised a lot. And uh, the amount of times that I've been asked about clickbait and cats... Oh, BuzzFeed, uh, what's it like uh, working for a website that's all about listicles? And you're like, okay, all right. We got nominated for a Pulitzer this week, which was really great. Like, uh, you know, the US team and the world team um, got shortlisted for the Pulitzer for international journalism. We've won the biggest, uh, the biggest award you can win um, in the UK for the UK division. And, you know, we were nominated for Walkley's for our first two years here. The problem is, is that you're coming up against journos who are worried about their jobs. And I fully appreciate that because I spent four and a, four or five years with them at the ABC. Um, what was it like? Well, some people get it. Some people understand what we're doing. Other people don't get it. People who get it. George Richardson gets it. He gets what we're doing. He knows that calling me and giving me a story and he knows that us having a fight on Twitter is good for him. Pauline Hansen gets it. The Greens get it, unsurprisingly. Far left, far right, they both get it. There are other people who don't get it and they're worried and a lot of those people work at like The Australian and things like that. So, look, what was it like? It was terrifying and the thing that made me realise what my job was like the moment which I had full clarity about what I was doing was the Sydney Siege. The Sydney Siege at the Link Cafe was just up the road from my work. And I kind of was like flailing around at BuzzFeed. I'm like, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing. Like far out. It was like a couple of months in. Like, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. And then I went to the Sydney Siege and it was like the biggest story in the world. And it was breaking and we were there. And my job was just to fact check everything that was on social media and all the garbage that was there. So I remember I saw a tweet from Chris Kenny from The Australian who literally was walking out of the Lint Cafe siege. And he was just like, a gunman has just walked into the Lint Cafe. And I was like, Pfft. I was like, I'm sure he has. And then he sent another tweet. I'm like, Chris Kenny would not make this up. This is a bit strange. So I like quickly walked up the road to where the Lint Cafe was and I saw these like terrified baristas with like a black Muslim flag and I went, holy shit. And from that point onwards, I was there for about 13 hours straight and my job was clear to me. It was like the ABC, Channel 7, Channel 9, 2GB, Triple M, all their reporters were down there, but they didn't understand social media. They didn't understand that like people want 
drip, 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 drip feed reporting from the scene. So until that moment, I thought I'd made a terrible mistake. Now, at a recent press conference that no one showed up to, a Labour politician called BuzzFeed a failing piece of garbage. Failing pile of garbage. Failing pile of... Thank you. Which takes, yeah, lots of pieces in a pile. Mark Latham, when he was attacking you via egg mode on Twitter, uh, called you, uh, yeah, called you BuzzFed. BuzzFed Uh, wanker. Does uh, that sort of view of BuzzFeed, people not understanding you, not getting you, does it make it hard to cover that big news, that hard news like the Sydney siege? I'd be lying to say that it didn't hurt a little bit because it's like we're doing serious stuff, you know? We're trying our hardest and, you know... I, I start work at about 6am in the morning and I finish at about 8 o'clock at night. And if anyone follows me on Twitter would know that, like, if something breaks, I'll stop what I'm doing and cover it because that's the job of a 24-hour reporter in the internet age. Look, Mark Latham, here you go. Here's a little bit of an exclusive <laughs> scoop. Mark Latham contacted me and asked me to be on his TV show, Facebook TV show. And I was like, mate... I've written so many stories about why you're the worst human in Australia, because, like, you pretty much are. And there he was being like, can you come on my show? And I'm thinking to myself, like, it just shows you that, like, Mark Latham's calling me a wanker and a dickhead and all this sort of stuff online is just performance for his followers. But I kind of like the... My boss, Simon, says that what we want to be is, like, the punk rock in the internet. We don't want to be known as like the cold play we want to be known as like the fucking scrappy upstart that people throw shade on and that's okay if places like the australian and the daily Tele and all this stuff give a shit quite often it's because we're on the right track with those right-wing commentators um are you able to tell the difference between them just saying something for ratings and those commentators genuinely believing what they are saying no because There are two guys in the Australian media which I find to be fascinating individuals for the next 20 years. It's Paul Murray on Sky News and Ben Fordham on 2GB. Two guys who are like relatively young. I think Paul is like 40. Ben Fordham is like in his mid-30s. Both are creatures of 2017. So both of them know that like gay marriage is settled. Climate change is settled. Like Paul and Ben both support climate change action and support gay marriage. But they are they run to the barricades on pretty much every other issue on Islam, on this and on that, right? So if if I think to myself as like, okay, so like Paul and Ben are gonna be like our generations, Alan Jones and Ray Hadley. But Alan Jones and Ray Hadley just haven't figured out that like gay marriage and climate change has just been settled amongst mm. a generation. We just need everyone to die out who's like over sixty at the moment. And we'll be okay on those big two social issues. So much of the media is performance. Like Malcolm Roberts from One Nation is a complete batty moron. The problem I find with Malcolm Roberts is he's just a stupid man. And he got elected to be a senator. And you talk to him and you're like, oh, wow, you, you don't know anything. You are literally an internet comment section come to life. And my problem with Malcolm Roberts is that he totally understands that we are his enemy for the purpose of performance. So he's banned BuzzFeed from press conferences just because we're the ones that are asking him the questions that he doesn't want to hear. David Lionhelm's another great example. David Lionhelm said this tweet once, which was like, we're all in our tribes and I've chosen my tribe. And Mark, you've chosen your tribe. 
and we're at war. And I'm like, David, put down the red wine. It'll be okay. So much of the media is too inward facing and not outward facing. We're all criticizing each other and attacking each other, which is really sad. Uh, now, you mentioned that uh, your working day starts at six and ends at eight. Is there such thing as work life balance for someone in 24 hour news? No. My, my partner <laughs> works in finance and she doesn't, she doesn't know who the treasurer is. Uh, it's the best. I love it because it means that when I come home and I say something like, Mark Latham is trolling me on Twitter, she'll be like, who's Mark Latham? And I'll be like, this is why I love you. Work-life balance. So I'm pretty sure everyone in this room has been told by media uh, lecturers, like media staff, you should listen to like AM on ABC in the morning and then you should, you know, read the newspapers and then you should watch this at night and whatever. My job is to make sure that when I start work, I'm completely read into the news. No one tweets between the hours of before 8 a.m. So what happens is between 8 a.m. and 10 o'clock is when you send your tweets because before that, just fave them all and then send them between 8 and 10 because no one's online before 8. Everyone's getting into work, everyone's getting onto the buses, everyone's going to train, they're looking at their phones. And then there's a dead zone between like 10 and one o'clock where no, everyone's like working. So you like don't publish anything. And then between like one and four, you can publish and tweet. And then between like four and seven, don't publish anything because everyone's at the gym or like cooking or picking up the kids. And then like after eight, eight to 12 is like, so I, I always think to myself, I've got those windows in the day in which I should be on social media. I sound like I sound like I'm like Kevin Spacey from Seven or something. <laughs> but like it's sort of like the the thing you need to do is you need to be a little bit weird and obsessed to be a really good news reporter because you need to want to know the latest. Like for all the bullshit that I will hang on right wing conservative press, I read the Daily Telegraph, the Australian, and all that sort of stuff because you need to be knowing what everyone who's making decisions are reading. David Crow from The Australian, like, is one of Malcolm Turnbull's favourite political reporters. So when David Crow writes something, you should consume it vociferously because what you need to know is that what Malcolm Turnbull is reading and and respecting. So I think that you need to do those things. And I also podcast a lot. There are there are probably about six politicians that are reliably viral on the internet. Pauline Hansen, Penny Wong. Paul Keating, who else? Tony Abbott. There's two others I'm forgetting because this is like a a general thing that I say. But like there's two others, right? So like imagine this. Paul Keating says anything, write a story on it because everyone on the internet cares about Paul Keating and they want to share a story about Paul Keating. Penny Wong, Julia Gillard is another one. Everyone loves Julia Gillard on the internet. (laughs) Write a story about, like, Julia Gillard becomes the new head of Beyond Blue. Write a story about it because everyone on the... This is the problem about the sharing world we live in now is that BuzzFeed quite often, me, myself included, you, you worry about whether a story is going to go well and, and it's going to traffic. And you think about how, like, will, will people share this? And if people will share it, it's a good indication of whether you think it's newsworthy. Because we live online now, and we live on Facebook, and we live on Twitter, and we live on Instagram, we live on Snapchat. 
if you think that something is shareable inherently, it kind of sometimes often means that it's a good piece of it's a, it's a piece of news. Is there a case now that uh, something that someone tweets, if they'd said it themselves, you probably wouldn't write a story about it? Malcolm Roberts, because you because they tweeted it, it becomes a story. So Pauline Hanson and Malcolm Roberts, the One Nation thing is a good example of that, right? So it's like, I don't know if people have been watching this recently. So Malcolm Roberts and Pauline Hanson have been having this war against the ABC, and Malcolm Roberts compared the ABC to ISIS. And you just think to yourself, you tweet it, and it gets 200 retweets. And you think to yourself, there's clearly an idea that you would would, you'd share. But like, it's not news. The guy is deliberately doing it to bait progressive news organisations to cover him. And so often you just need to sit on your hands and just be like, nah. Like, what's going on at the moment in Australia? We will suffer the Brexit-Trump thing if we don't make good editorial decisions. Now, uh, moving on to your book, I had a chat to uh, three members of the political class, uh, asked them what their thoughts on your book were, and uh, all three people came back with a uh, line that was pretty much the same, where they called your book a uh, piece of political porn. Yes. Now, uh, why did you feel that twenty the twenty sixteen election was an election worth writing a book about? Because they asked me to write a book. So that's no, they, genuinely that is the reason why. But like, I, I shouldn't say that. Louise Adler, who's the head of Melbourne University Press, asked me to live tweet a reading of one of her publishing house's books. And I said, Mom, I'm not going to do that. That's a weird thing to do. And she was like, well, when are you going to write a book for me? This is in December, two years ago. And I said, oh, I'll write a book about the election. And she's like, great, let's get a coffee. So I had a coffee with her and she said, what could you do about this year's election? And I said, well, I really, really, really love this guy named Michael Hastings, who used to work for BuzzFeed and Rolling Stone and has since passed away, unfortunately. And I was really inspired by his writing about like politics. It's funny that you say the P word porn because the way that Michael described politics was just this like, it exposed just how dirty political messaging and politics and the process of writing stories was. And I think that that's what I wanted to do. Like I wanted to write a story about what it's actually like and it's not nice. Being a political journal is not fun all the time. It's disgusting. And you're talking to awful people all the time. And you're talking to... Like, you're you're in situations where people like journalists who you respect are are covering for politicians. And you're like, what are you doing? Like, this is not your role and it's not your job. But I wanted to write a diary because we wanted to get it out really, really quickly after the election. This came out... I, I gave the draft one week after the result and um, it was like 60,000 words one week after I had really bad mental health anxiety attacks to get it done but I'm really glad it's done and like I mean I think Annabelle Crabb who is like my idol has been my idol for like a decade she wrote the quote on the back what's what does it say on the back it's like Mark Stefano is relentless, nosy, indiscreet, outrageous, and at any given moment, guaranteed to be giving someone somewhere the shit. Yeah. A terrific journo, in other words. Yeah, and I think that that's like kind of, you know, 
like Annabelle to, to write that about me was just like, I felt that's the kind of Jenna I want to be. Like, I don't want to be friends with Malcolm Turnbull. It's kind of, you kind of want to sometimes. You're like, I kind of, like, I kind of like a few people who are politicians, but your job is adversarial. And that's the thing you need to remember. It's like, your job is to be there for the audience. Your job is not there to like become mates with the treasurer. Your job is to like give the treasurer a hard time about his bad decisions. Does that mean that uh, to be adversarial with everyone, everyone has to be attacking you from all sides, saying that you're biased to the other side? There's a, there's this really interesting differentiation between the ideas of should journalists be sceptical or cynical? And I think that the difference between sceptical and cynical is like maybe the most stark difference in politics or journalism. It's like, should you trust in politicians that they've got their hearts in the right place so you're sceptical? Or should you think that politicians are constantly on the lookout to sell their message so you should be cynical? Probably the best cynical journalist in Australia when it comes to someone who treats politicians like they're always trying to hoodwink people is Bernard Keane at Crikey. Never going to write anything nice about a politician. But he's cynical. And that's good. Someone who's sceptical and is amazing, David Spears at Sky News. When David Spears interviews someone on Sky News, I literally have to turn it up like because we have Sky muted in our office. I turn it up because what he does, he, he sits there and goes... But I don't understand. Like, what you're saying to me just does not make sense. And he'll do that to George Brandis, Christopher Pine, Malcolm Turnbull. He did this interview with last year in the election where Malcolm Turnbull did not release the costings for the company tax cuts over 30 years. And David Spears just sat there and asked him the same question 18 times. And, but he did it in a way that wasn't infuriating that made Malcolm Turnbull look like a moron. Because David Spears is sitting there going, no, Prime Minister, I'm just, I'm just wondering how much it costs. And Malcolm would be like, blah, 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 blah. And then David's like, no, 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 you didn't answer my question. I'm just wondering, this is like your like, key policy, company tax cuts. How much does it cost? And he did it 18 times. And he, just, he made Malcolm Turbo melt. And the next day they released their costings because of that. And he did the same thing with George Brandis with a metadata interview, like famously. The genius of that was David Spears being like, oh no, I don't understand what you're talking about. Like, you're not making any sense. But he was doing it in such a beautifully loving way that George Brandis was, didn't shut down or didn't attack David. He was just like, I'm melting. So I think that, I think that there's two ways to go. You can go cynical, you go skeptical, and you can sort of move between the two. Um, and I think that both are healthy. Memes play a strange role in politics. The way I talk to other politicians about memes, because they will sometimes, like, a senator will come to like, Mark, you're from BuzzFeed. Tell me about these memes. And you're like, well, okay, like, where do we start? Like, the best way I can explain it is, like, is imagine this way. Tony Abbott eats an onion. It's absurd. It's so ridiculous. It played into the meme of him being a completely weird lizard person. Like, this really strange, out of touch. Like, the reason why that was so... That resonated so much, that image of him eating an onion, 
because it like reinforced the meme about who he was. Malcolm Turnbull, the meme about him at the last election wasn't about innovative and agile memes or whatever, blah, blah, blah. It was about he was Mr. Harborside Mansion, that he was out of touch, that he was, he owned this house in Port Piper, that he didn't care. So when, and the reason why meme can take off is when something is fed into the current status of the way people think. So Bill Shorten eating the sausage sandwich the wrong way, that reinforced people's like perceptions that he's a strange man. <laughs> so I think that the thing to remember about memes, it's like you can have literal memes, but then you can have political memes. So you can have like literal, like memes that like surround people. And the things that become, there's, a, there's actually a really, I think there's a huge body of work about this, about Donald Trump. It's like the reason why the grab them by the pussy tape was so damaging is because it reinforced the, the, the thing that people thought most about him, which is he was a creep. Tax records, all that sort of stuff, people don't care about because they already knew that he was a tax, you know, a, someone who was like minimizing his tax. But the grab by the pussy tape was the one that really took off because it was like, I knew it. You are a sexual assaulter, allegedly. And um, I think that that's the same thing about politics. It's like the only thing, it only becomes damaging when it plays into people's perceptions about who they really are. Now, could you just run us through your average day in Parliament House? Alice Workman and I work in a cupboard and we get in, like I, I wake up at six. I usually try to go for a run or something. I listen to AM radio between 7 and 7.30 on Radio National. And then I listen to Fran between 7.30 and 8. And I usually get into work at about 7.30. And then we start listening to Ray Hadley in the office on 2GB. And then usually what we do is Alice and I have talked about what we're going to do. And then we have an editorial meeting at 9.15 with the Sydney office. And then like the rest of the day between 9.15 and 2 o'clock when question time starts is that we try to get about three or four stories out because we know that it's so busy that there's always stuff happening. There's always like a press conference in a childcare centre in like Goulburn. And so you drive out there where Malcolm Turnbull is. 2 to 3.30, you've got question time. We're usually trying to do an interview between 3.30 and 5. And then between like five, as I was saying before, like five and seven, everyone's off the internet. So you can actually take some time to get some dinner and all that sort of stuff. And then afterwards, like it's Monday night, you have to watch Q&A and Four Corners. So you're usually getting to bed about 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And then you start at six, you have to wake up at 6 a.m. the next morning. But I think that there's no, there's no average day, but the average day usually consists of trying to figure out things that you know that are really going to take off because they reflect normal everyday life. As an example was uh, Labor MP Terry Butler, who's excellent, she's a a great person. I'm the skeptical person now, not the cynical one. Um, Terry Butler said to Ian Goodenough, a coalition backbencher, when he was talking against gay marriage, she got up and like said this like 15 second thing, it was really quick. And no one else was listening to it, but I was listening to it. I was in the house and I was listening to it. And it was like, Mr. Goodenough, I've known you for a long time. And uh, let's just say that uh, I understand why you've been single for so long. Let's just say that don't bring that, that line out on the first date. And isolated, like if, no, if we didn't cover it, no one would have covered it. But because it played into this aspect of this like woman telling this like conservative man, like, dude, 
this is why you're single, which is kind of what you, it'd be an interaction that would happen at a bar. I always think that that's kind of one of the reasons that journalists forget that like they want their politicians to act like normal people. And when those things happen, that's when we know that there's going to be a story there. So, yeah. Mm. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Adam Bant's push to change the dress code for journalists in the gallery? So they should. It's really strange that men in the journal, men in the press gallery have to wear blazers and women can't wear sleeveless tops. It's just like, it's 2017. This is a bit ridiculous. And, um, and also women on the floor of parliament can't breastfeed, which is a bit dumb. Kelly O'Dwyer, who is the um, assistant treasurer, she's just about to have her second child. She is the first, this, the first woman to ever, first cabinet minister to ever take maternity leave. And that's just outrageous. We should just relax more. That would be great. So there's a few changes to ha- that need to happen at yes. Parliament House. All right. So could you just very quickly run us through how did you get from university to where you are now? What was the, what did you start, where did you get your start? In student I used to always, um, I used to always be really freaking out about um, where I, where you guys are seated right now. Like I used to always, I'm a very anxious person. I have really bad anxiety, and I used to go home and I'd be like, "Fuck, I didn't get a cadetship again for the seventh time." And my boss Ben Smith talks about the one thing he looks for in journalists. This is a really good lesson. It's not video production. Sorry, Jack, but like. It's raw aggression. Like, it's actually just, like, not taking no for an answer. You get hung up on three times. You call a fourth time. You show up to events. You don't be scared to ask questions at press conferences. How did I do it? Look, my the long-form podcast on um, is one of the best podcasts around, and it's, like, got 300 episodes, and I've listened to every single one, I think. And the one thing I've learned is that you cannot take anyone's path to success, you got to do your own. But the one thing I would say is that might be hard, but like get out of Sydney and Melbourne. Like you've got to move. I moved to Tamworth. Moved to Tamworth. I went to Darwin. I went to Darwin for a year. It was the best year of my life. It was the best year of my life. I was a boy who was wearing skinny jeans and going out to like the country and indigenous leaders would be like, why are you wearing skinny jeans? And I'd be like, that's all I have. And um, I was so out of place and I, I did it for a year and I loved it so much, but I would not be where I am. I, I, I would not have my job at BuzzFeed if not for two things. One, going to Darwin and living in Darwin. And the second thing would be Twitter because Twitter was the way I got onto my boss's radar. And Twitter is an amazing example of whether you are a good journalist or not. It's no surprise to me that Barry Cassidy and Laura Tingle uh, and George Megalogenis and Laurie Oakes are all guns at Twitter. Like, do you know why? Because they're guns at being a journalist. Because they're firing off stuff that is like wry and witty and funny. Twitter is a really good distillation about whether you're going to be a good journal or not. Because if you can't tweet, it usually is an indication that you can't distill information from complex things to 140 characters. It's not to say that there aren't great journalists who aren't on Twitter. There, there are. But usually if you're a good journal, you're a good journal on Twitter. And don't start a blog. No one reads your blog. People do read your Twitter feed. That's it from us on Fourth Estate. Thanks to our guest, Mark Stefano. 
Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. If you already subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review. It helps other people find the show and lets us know what you like and what you don't like. My name's Jack Begby, and you can catch us at the same time next week.